Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Bible Breakdown. Excited to be back with you today. Fun news on The Bible Breakdown. We now have 100 Spotify followers, so that's pretty neat. Thank you for all of you who think it's worth getting a notification when a new Bible Breakdown episode pops up. Thank you, Spotify, also for existing, I reckon. Uh, I use Spotify to listen to my fantasy football podcast, which I did this very day. And you're saying, Blake, isn't fantasy football over? I'd say, yes, it is. Got to get ready for next year. I really enjoy fantasy football. So anyway, I also really enjoy talking about the Bible. And that's what we'll spend the lion's share of our time doing today. Not talking about fantasy football. We can talk about that some other time. But we are going to continue with some stories about Jesus' ministry. Last week, we talked about the Pharisees trying to trick Jesus with some questions. You can guess how that went. He was not fooled didn't register as a possible trickery because Jesus is God. So he's got the upper hand on us mere mortals. Uh, This week, we are going to see actually Jesus with a pretty scathing rebuke of the practices of the Pharisees, which really is going to sum up everything that was wrong with the party of the Pharisees. And if you read it all, it's like, okay, he's not, he's not pulling any punches. He's not uh, he's not dancing around it. He's telling them uh, what they have done wrong and uh, why that is not in line with the heart of God. I do just want to us to have a reminder uh, on the Pharisees and how they started and who they were. So the Pharisees started as a group who, uh, in the midst of the political turmoil in the nation of Judah, after the return, they wanted to preserve the law and they wanted to lead people to observe it with the hope that they would not again find themselves in exile. So that's kind of how the group started. What they turned into, though, was this kind of socio-politico-religious group. Okay, they kind of got mixed up between social, political, and religious. And it became more concerned, the party did, with their way rather than the heart of God. And that's, I think, where they really end up off track. Uh, You may remember when we talked about the uh, resident resurrection of Lazarus, Lazarus, excuse me, when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. One thing that the Pharisees were worried about, the religious leaders were worried about, was losing their place, uh, meaning possibly um, the generally uh, free relationship they had with Rome. They did have quite a bit of religious authority, but also meaning their place of prominence in the Jewish society. So that was their concern after they found out that somebody raised another person from the dead. They weren't like, wow, maybe this guy is legit and he is the Messiah. They said, no, I'm a little bit worried that I won't get my nice seat in the temple. So in Matthew 23, we're going to look at, we are going to look at three of the ways. There's more um, if you are reading the ESV or probably other versions too. It's going to refer to this chapter as seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, So that would obviously indicate there are seven. We're going to look at three of the ways and we could parse out more, but We'll just, yeah, three will be good. Uh, Three ways that the Pharisees were unfaithful to their call as religious leaders of God's people. Because remember, that's who they were. They were the the scribes, experts in the law. The Pharisees were all meant to be people that were guiding people toward God, these religious leaders. So the first thing that we are going to look at that the Pharisees did wrong, according to Jesus, is they exalted themselves and their good works. So they exalted themselves and their good works. So in Matthew 23, verses 5 through 12, it says this, They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries 
broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus starts by saying that one of these condemnations of the Pharisees is they sought honor and glory. So he talks about uh, the way they dressed. Um, that's that part about the phylacteries. I had to look that one up. Um, what that means in the fringe, uh, that would be, uh, you know, kind of like something, maybe like a train uh, with a dress, something like that. Um, it's saying about how they they dressed. It talks about where they positioned themselves at feasts, you know, uh, these celebrations, uh, and also in the synagogue, giving themselves the positions of honor, uh, the best seats, and how they loved going around in the marketplace and being called rabbi. And they just loved the honor of that. So in all of these ways, they were actually looking to put themselves in positions to look good. They weren't doing what they were supposed to do. Maybe there's a certain place that a person should be sitting in the synagogue if they are planning to teach, but they were doing it for the purpose of exalting themselves, for the honor of people. They wanted people to notice and revere them. Uh, they wanted to be the fathers and teachers of the land, and Jesus emphasized that these positions are already taken by God, that they are no one's father, that they are no one's true teacher, that they are no one's true instructor, right? No one's true rabbi, but that those things ultimately ultimately reside in God. And I think the uh, the understanding there is to say, like, you shouldn't call them rabbi, not only because they're not the ultimate one, but because they're also not following in the footsteps of the true rabbi. So they're not instructors because they are not even in the uh, teaching the same thing that the ultimate instructor, the Messiah, is teaching. So what should they have done? In, what they should have done instead is pursued the godly quality of humility. So Jesus says here that the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus says this piece about uh, being a servant to his disciples multiple times in the gospels. Uh, and this verse about humbling ourselves comes with actually several cross-references, uh, two other scriptures in, that are noted by the ESV. And what we're going to see is it's across the whole corpus of scripture. It's not just in like, oh yeah, they said that a couple of times in the gospel, but we see uh, some basically the same thing stated in very similar words in Proverbs. We see it in Ezekiel. We see it obviously here in the gospels. We see it in the book of James, one of the, one of the letters and in another letter by another guy in first Peter. So this is a quality that proceeds from the heart of God, this humility, this godly humility. And it's something that for God's people for all time has been something that he has called us to this godly humility. And no one exemplified that better than Jesus. When we think about his birth and the humble beginnings being born uh, in a or lay in a manger, born uh, amongst some animals, no room in the inn, let alone a, a palace or something extravagant, a very humble beginning to humble parents. And then, of course, in his life, while he should have, again, been in the places of prominence, uh, in the palaces, things like that. That's what he deserved. He was amongst normal people with sinners. 
going around uh, not looking to exalt himself in his life. He chose humility over self-exaltation, even though he's the only one who deserves to be exalted, right? And guess what? Now, according to Philippians 2.9, his name is exalted above all names. So as he, in his life on earth, was humble and obedient to the Father, so now that after his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, now his name is exalted above all names. He serves as the perfect example of godly humility because he is God and of what it means to, in some ways, not that our names will be exalted like Jesus's, but what it means to really rest on the fact that God is the one who's in control and that the exaltation of people is not something that is long-lasting or important but instead it is that exaltation that comes from God. When we will get to be with God, that will be our ultimate exaltation to be a part of God's family. Not that people will say our names are great, but that we will get the opportunity to say how great Jesus' name is. So what is then godly humility? We're called to godly humility. So what is it? If we are called to do something, we should probably know what it is, right? So here's how I'd boil it down. Godly humility is having an accurate view of yourself and not seeking honor from people. Around the church, sometimes we would describe it as being right-sized. That means not too little and not too big. Because humility is also not self-deprecation. It is not to put yourself down. Okay, Because God has ascribed value to us as people created in His image. He loves us. He has sacrificed for us. He has given us spiritual gifts when we are in Christ as well, the Holy Spirit, and he's given us the Holy Spirit. And also, again, as I mentioned before, we're invited into God's family. So to say that person is of no value is uh, to be in disagreement with God. To say that you have no value is to be in disagreement with God, or even to ascribe yourself too little value is to be in disagreement with God because he has ascribed incredibly high value to us because of who he is. So to be humble then is to be confident in who God has made us to be and called us to be and not letting accolades or attention of others be a factor in the choices that we make. So that would be a way that we would be confident in who we are. And then we would take it into a level of pride is if we took our gifts and we said, this might be an opportunity for me to get accolades or attention from others. So I'm gonna give you an example. Let's say you uh, had an exceptional year at work and uh, your workplace wanted to honor you for that and they wanted to give you an award or a bonus, right? So you can humbly accept an award for doing something well at work. But if you start then to work in a way to position yourself to, oh, maybe I'll get the award next time if I can get seen doing XYZ. Maybe I can get that bonus if I do XYZ. I just got to make sure that people are paying attention, right? Then something's gone wrong because... It's okay for people to praise us and to give us compliments and to even, yeah, give us things like awards or recognition. But if that's what we are seeking, then now we are leaving the realm of, oh, hey, sometimes we actually do get recognized for the goodness we do uh, into a place where we are trying to seek the attention accolades of others. And I say that you can accept an award humbly because, too, I don't think we want to be the person who let's say you do something genuinely kind and the person says, oh, thank you. You say, no, no, it was all God. It was just God working through me. It's kind of like this false humility that minimizes you. 
um, and your and your obedience. And it doesn't actually really exalt God because if you've ever been on the other end of that, sometimes you're kind of like, now I feel uncomfortable. Now just maybe say you're welcome uh, when you do something kind and somebody says thank you. Uh, that would be my advice. Uh, I don't think that it makes us look particularly humble when we are totally deflecting. Uh, sometimes I think that's it goes in the category of having too small a view of ourselves. Or maybe we want people to think we're really awesome and humble and actually that's this you know it can get just just say you're welcome that would be my advice uh it is okay too for us to recognize people for what they do their obedience you know their life things like that things they've done we just don't want to exalt people to a higher level of humanity right so we wouldn't want to say uh let's take a, the recently deceased uh pastor tim keller a, a great man uh did a lot of great work a lot of uh, great writings that have helped a lot of people so let's not pretend like, well, it's not like I'm a Tim Keller or something like he's on some other plane of existence. I guess he actually is now because he's with the Lord, but that he was some higher level of human. He was a human and he had his flaws, I'm sure. It's okay for us to recognize him as, man, he was really faithful and he did all these great things without putting him in a se separate category, if that makes sense. It's not, it's not wrong for us to recognize the good that he's done, but we don't want to pretend that he was something more than just another sinner saved by grace. And he was acting in obedience, if that makes sense. All right, I know we're kind of getting into the weeds. It can be tough to find the line, uh, but through the through the work of the Spirit, I I hope that we can. So, next, let's move into the second thing that Jesus is going to condemn the Pharisees for. The second thing he condemned the Pharisees for was leading the people into despair and sin. So we see this in verse four, and then verses thirteen through fifteen. In verse four, it says they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. And then down to verses 13 through 15, but woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would, en would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So. Jesus is talking here about how it wasn't only the Pharisees' actions, uh, or their own actions rather, but those that they led others to do that were a reason for their condemnation. Things they kept people from, that was also a reason from for their condemnation. Verse 4, he talks about heavy burdens laid on people, right? High expectations, probably a result of the Pharisees' man-made regulations, uh, also combined with the difficulty of a person think about it. So let's say these Pharisees who, you know, are work at the temple, so to speak, they are making these really, really strict regulations. And they're putting them on common non religious job people to be able to like, you should be living a life just like I am when that's literally all the Pharisees have to do. Does that make sense? It's like, they've got the time to do it because that's literally kind of their job. Right. If I was like, y'all should be doing Bible breakdown podcasts. Why don't you have time for that? Well, I know y'all have got other stuff going on. This is part of my job. So I think part of the, part of it, the uh, part of the heavy burden is that they had these man-made regulations, which we should really try to stray from man-made spiritual regulations. Right. And then combined with the difficulty of putting those on a person uh, who may not be equipped to do that. Okay. And making matters worse. They gave them these rules and standards and they didn't help them achieve them. That's what Jesus says there. He says, you're not willing to move them with their finger. Okay. If I was to tell you that every day you need to read your Bible 
and you need to make a list of observations of whatever you read. You need to then interpret those observations to understand their full meaning. You need to create application points for your life. There would be a couple of problems with that, okay? The first is that is not the only way to interact with God's word. It's a good way, but it's not the only way. So I've created now that my way of doing it is the way that should be your way. So that's a problem. Second, am I helping you learn how to do those things? Am I helping you understand what it means to observe some tools you could have to help interpret some tools you could have to create applications for your life? If not, we've got a problem, right? And third, if I was to measure your devotion to Jesus on how well you did the Bible reading that I decided was right, that would not accurately reflect your heart. So in all these ways, Jesus said the way that the Pharisees were living, treating others, that they were closing the doors to heaven in people's faces. Man, I would, I would hate to have Jesus accuse me of that. That is uh, about the, the worst thing that you could think a religious leader would do, that they would shut the door of heaven in people's faces. Basically meaning, I think what he means by that is that he made it more, that the Pharisees were making it more difficult for people to actually know God by their actions and what they were doing. They were making it more difficult for people to understand God and what his kingdom is about. And he also said that, hey, you know, you have some disciples. Proselyte is a word we don't use a whole lot. It sounds kind of mystical, but basically like a disciple. He said their disciples were worse off for being with them, that they would have been better if they'd never met them from a spiritual standpoint. And this is something, as we talk about this, um, this kind of general category, uh, leading people into despair and sin, we need to be, as believers, as leaders, as pastors, need to be wary of, right? We should be leading people toward God, not toward a list of do's and don'ts. And sometimes we do this by uh, expecting people who are not believers to somehow conform to God's way of living without the power of the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you can attest to the fact that it is difficult to conform to God's way of living. And that's even with the power of the Holy Spirit, because we are still people who struggle with the flesh, that sinful part of us that still exists. So that's one way that sometimes we maybe are leading people toward do's or don'ts rather than leading people toward God. Sometimes we can do this by setting up our own sets of rules for what makes a person a good Christian, whatever a good Christian is, right? Uh, good Christian, bad Christian. I think you're just a Christian or you're not a Christian, right? And if we were to make a measuring stick of any sort, I think we'd probably all end up on the bad side of that if we were to do that. So let's just settle. Let's just settle. There's not really good Christians, bad Christians, right? And sometimes another way we might kind of lead people toward do's and don'ts rather than leading people toward God is sometimes we look at a person's life as a moment instead of a journey. And we can make judgments or we can be frustrated with people when they're not you know, what we would consider all the way there, or they're making mistakes that we think that they should be passed, right? That in itself too is uh, an issue. We don't want to be people who are uh, making snap judgments about people um, just based on a moment and, and also not neglecting the fact that uh, our faith is a journey, that from the moment we believe in Jesus, we are changed 100%. And yet at the same time, our maturity is something that grows gradually through discipleship. That is really what the process of discipleship is, becoming more like Jesus to reflect Jesus more. And that's a process. We hope to be farther uh, along in our spiritual maturity on day 10,000 of our faith than we were on day one. And so we need to take that uh, tactic with others as well and make sure that we're not putting unfair burdens on other people to get it together in whatever way that they, we think that they should, right?
Okay, the, the third and final way, way we're going to look uh, at what Jesus said as he condemned the Pharisees is that they prioritized outward works over the inward heart posture. They prioritize their outward works over a true godly inward heart posture. And we see this in verses 23 through 28 of Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. And woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like the whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woo, man, tough one. But this is kind of probably the bread and butter of what the Pharisees are known for, right? They're really good at the letter of the law, but they failed to see the heart of the law. What Jesus describes, he sums up here as justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Also, the Pharisees' actions indicate that they also believed they were justified by works of the law and not by God's grace, something that Paul is going to talk a great deal about in his epistles. So Jesus says, basically, he said, hey, you were really good at tithing your seeds, um, which was something that they were called to do. So that wasn't just something they did for no reason. But he said, there are more important matters than tithing your seeds. And he said that those are justice and mercy and faithfulness. He said, those were left wanting, even though you did a good job at tithing your seeds. And I think that you can even hear as I talk about mm, justice, mercy, faithfulness, mm, making sure the right amount of seeds go into the tithe. I think that we can all admit like, yeah, I think one of those seems weightier than the other. So, and then he uses this uh, example as well. They strained out a gnat, but they ate a camel. Okay. So imagine you've got some pasta and you're straining it and you're like, oh man, I got to work. I could get this gnat out of here. Then you've got a camel on top of your pasta and you eat that, which you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to be eating a full camel in case you were wondering. So it's kind of also similar to the, uh, when you've got a log in your own eye, but you, you're focused on the speck in your brother's eye, got very similar, uh, sentiment there. And then Jesus goes further with his comparison. He says, they are like cups that are dirty on the inside, but look clean on the outside, deceptive, right? There's this, this false image and on the inside, not useful for drinking out of. If you are drinking out of a clear glass and you see some dirt, your first question you're probably going to ask is, is that on the inside or the outside of the cup? If it's on the outside of the cup, you're probably going to be okay with it and you can deal. Uh, if it's inside, you may choose like, you know, I'm actually going to get a fresh cup here because this one's obviously a little dirty. Because the outside part is not touching what you're drinking, right? It may touch your hand. You can wash your hands pretty easily. It's harder to wash your mouth. And so if it's dirt on the inside, you're like, no, that's not good because it's now affecting what I'm drinking. And if it's on the outside, you're like, oh, that's okay. It's actually not touching what I'm drinking. I'm not ingesting it, right? So this is also, this kind of idea is consistent with the way they paraded themselves around for honor. They wanted their actions to show how good they were. They wanted to parade how good they were based on their actions. So it kind of goes hand in hand a little bit with the exalting themselves. Uh, and then going 
even a step further, I think a, a step more, um, I guess it, it feels a little heavier. Uh, Jesus says, you're like a well-decorated tomb. That it looks nice on the outside, but inside it's death. A well-decorated tomb. So it's the same sentiment as the cup. I've, again, it's more serious. It's heavier. This idea that inside they are dead. Not just that, oh, you're, this is kind of like a slap on the hand, but like it's, this goes to the core of you. The core of you is not right with God. And this is another way, too, that I want us to encourage to, uh, all of us to be uh, cognizant of in our lives. To think that we can measure ourselves by what we do is a dangerous way to live. Because we can become prideful when we're doing well, but and we can be forgetting we're in need of grace. And then we can implode when we're caught in sin. We can start to implode. If everything is built up on the fact that we're doing the right thing, what happens when we don't do the right thing? We kind of implode. When I was in high school, uh, I actually had a moment like this where I was kind of confronted with the reality of how I had treated people, how I'd put people down, how I'd shamed people, how I thought I was better than other people, even at the same time as I was putting them down and shaming them, right? And when I recognized that my legalism wasn't holding up, that the standards I was holding other people to and shaming them for that I was doing the same things, I realized anew how much I was a sinner in need of grace because I was confronted with my sin in a way that was new to me. And when I was able to see it, then you can't unsee it, right? When you see yourself for who you are apart from Christ, you can't unsee it. And so recognizing that I was a sinner in need of grace helped me also to treat others the same way more and more. That helped me grow and develop in that way. And that's why we have to be wary of this because again, seeing the sin that we have, once we see it, we'll, we implode. Either that or we're in like epic denial of who we are because if we're going to measure ourselves by our outward actions, we are not going to measure up. And the hope and the truth of the gospel is it's okay that we don't measure up. And it is impossible to measure up, but that Jesus measured up. So efforts to keep up appearances or be justified by our good works lead to no good outcomes. And it was the same for the Pharisees. And they were dead inside is what Jesus says. So to conclude, I hope that you kind of caught that we were doing our application on the go. But I do want to just kind of have a little conclusion for us as we seek to uh, take this knowledge that Jesus has given us and exhibit it in the world with a good heart. What God has called us to is a humble faith that leads people to understand the grace of God so that he can, through the Holy Spirit, mobilize us to good works. And those good works are not to prove our worth, but to act in obedience and love and to reflect God's character to the world. And I hope that we can all do that better and better, more and more, through the power of the Holy Spirit every single day.